Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Rachel Becker. I'm an environment reporter at CalMatters and your moderator today. As the club continues to host virtual events, they are grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. Visit www.commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership or support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by clicking the blue donate button on your screen. Uh, the club would also like to thank Wonderfest for supporting today's program. Uh, just a reminder, if you have a question for today's guest, please submit those in the chat. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome Carl Zimmer, the weekly Matter columnist for the New York Times and author of Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Carl is a deeply respected science journalist and has won numerous awards, including the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Science Journalism Award. It's a mouthful. Three times. He also teaches at Yale, where he's a professor adjunct in the Department of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry. So, Carl, welcome. Thanks for having me. So let me start off by asking you, you've written more than a dozen other books about viruses, parasites, neuroscience, genetics, evolution. What made you ask the central question of your new book, What is Life? I guess in a way, it's just sort of lurking there in the background uh, the whole time that I've been uh, writing other books about, about life um, and writing for the New York Times. You know, I'm writing about these things that are alive, uh, like trees and and jellyfish and all sorts of other cool things. And, you know, the question keeps coming up, well, what unites them? What is it that uh, they all are? Um, what is it? What does it mean to be alive as in the subtitle of the book? And, um, you know, it's this, it's the kind of uh, question I would sort of delve into from time to time uh, in articles over the years. And I just thought, you know, maybe this is uh something that I should really go deep into uh, with an entire book. And so that was sort of the genesis of, of Life's Edge. Uh, trying, and I thought, you know, I should, maybe I should think about this, you know, not necessarily as like providing the definitive answer, but going on a trip with the readers through life, starting kind of at the core of life with things that we all agree are alive, and then going into that weird, fuzzy borderland where life and non-life meet and trying to figure out, well, where do we draw that line uh, between the living and the non-living? And as we sort of take that trip through this book over and over, we see scientists try and, spoiler alert, ultimately fail to come up with big sweeping theories of life or even really discover its essence. Um, which of the stories that you came across has really stuck with you? Oh, there are... Um... There are many. <laughs> um, that's the amazing thing is that there, there are so many stories uh, over the course of the past, say, 300 years where uh, you have scientists who in one way or another are, are confronting this, this basic question of what life is uh, and are, are uh, sometimes going off in um, some pretty wild directions and, and uh, chasing mirages sometimes. You know, this is... This is a book about failure, but in the best sense of the word, you know, we don't, we haven't really reckoned with what life is yet, and and it'll take a while. And um, so you have, for example, um, in the in the eighteen hundreds, the mid eighteen hundreds, um, a lot of really prominent naturalists, some of the world's greatest naturalists, who became convinced that the entire ocean floor was covered with one living thing. Uh, they would call it a living paste, and they thought it was the most fundamental uh, uh, feature of life on Earth. And they even gave it a Latin name, Bathybius. It was in textbooks. Uh, everyone thought that this was a real thing, that maybe this was the, the source of all life as we know it. And it didn't exist. It was just the result of a, a fluke of bad chemistry with, when someone was preserving some ooze on the seafloor. Um, but, you know, the the, the question of, of, of what uh, it takes to be alive is so tricky that uh, even the greatest minds can, can get fooled and, and see mirages where none exists. So, um, so those were the kinds of stories that really fascinated me. And, you know, there's sort of, I think, you know, scientists today should take some comfort from them that um, really great minds uh, could get fooled. 
Yeah, something I wondered when I was reading about Bithybius and uh, how it was just an accident of, of, of chemistry um, was what that tells us about this search for what it means to be alive. Does it, does it mean that it's fruitless? No, not at all. It means that it's just a, it's kind of a bumpy road. Um, I mean, one reason that, um, that this idea of Bithybius uh, was so embraced um, and, you know, was reported on in newspapers. I mean, everyone thought this was real. Um, the, the reason for it in part was that this was at the time where scientists were finally able to see inside of cells and they could, they finally realized that there was this strange uh, gooey substance in there um, that they called protoplasm. And it, it started to become clear that whatever it is that makes life special um, the answer was going to be found in that goo, in, the, in that protoplasm. And so when scientists would, would look through their microscopes and think they saw this sort of very primitive cell-like thing, um, you know, they might say, uh, well, this is it. This is, this is uh, you know, the Germ Germans in the early 1800s almost predicted this. They, they, they said that um, the, the first form of life was what they called an ur-slime, the proto-slime. And so people thought, well, here it is. We found it. So it all kind of fit together um, until, you know, some, some good chemists said, uh, wait a minute, like we were looking for it and we're not finding it. And I think, uh, I think somebody made a big mistake. And to the credit of these scientists who had been promoting it, like, uh, like Huxley, for example, um, perhaps, you know, the greatest biologist of his time, um, he got a letter from a, from a scientific uh, a voyage where the scientists were saying, like, we don't think this is real. And he immediately published it, the letter in Nature, and just said, if there's a mistake, it's, it's my fault. So he owned to it. And so, so science moved forward. Um, so Bethybius doesn't exist, but, you know, there is something like protoplasm. I mean, our cells are full of, of goo and really that's where all the action is, the proteins, the DNA, all the molecules that we, that scientists discover much later. I was, I was impressed with the humility that it took for Huxley to, to basically publish a whoops in nature. And also it was difficult to imagine a time when nature would publish a, whoop, never mind. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, 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 it is definitely to his credit. Yeah. And there were definitely people who would not say, oops, you know, I have uh, some stories about people who really thought that they, they had um, grasped the life itself and turned out to be really wrong and couldn't admit it. And that, that, that was their doom. They, they, they would be laughed out of, of science and would be, you know, just harbor, bitter resentment for decades until their death. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a risky business to try to ask what life is. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to ask what life is. Your, your book explored, you know, a bunch of different criteria. You had metabolism, you know, maintaining this internal balance known as homeostasis, uh, reproduction and evolution. Did you ever come up with kind of a, a definition or even just a set of criteria that satisfied you? No. Um, and, and the more I thought about it, the less satisfied I, I was. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that I have some, uh, you know, particular insight beyond the, the great minds that I'm writing about in this book. But, um, when you, but when you see um, scientists over the centuries coming up with one definition after another after another, you notice that um, each definition uh, has an awful lot to do with what that particular scientist is interested in. You know, so when um, when biochemists were first figuring out uh, some of the molecules of life, the enzymes and so on, uh, you know, they um, uh, they define life in terms of biochemistry. Um, someone like Francis Crick, uh, who, who uh, co-discovered the structure of DNA, really thought about life very much from the perspective of, of genetic information. Um, so. Um, so, you know, clearly, but, and yet, like, it's strange because, you know, we all intuitively have a sense that there is something alive, you know, starting with ourselves. Um, and, and I think that's actually where we get into trouble. Um, you know, 
part of the trouble is a sort of a philosophical problem. You know, maybe we're we're framing these questions incorrectly, but part of the problem is a, a, a sort of a psychological one. We have intuitions about life and and death, and those are the product of, of natural selection. Those those are uh, survival traits, I, I would argue, um, and those are great for for genes getting passed on, but they're not necessarily going to give you a, a super precise. Uh, guide to what it really does mean to be alive. Um, so, uh, you know, and, you know, the, the, the irony is that, you know, um, we, we, we feel alive in a way that, like, it's so obvious that surely life must be obvious. Um, but, you know, as I write in the book, um, you know, there are, there is actually a psychological disorder called Cotard syndrome, where people are just as convinced that they are dead. And they will explain to their doctors, you know, how it is that they can be talking to them, even though they're dead. Uh, and they come up with very elaborate explanations that make sense to them. Um, and, you know, so we actually like have these sort of, uh, you know, these circuits in our brains that register our own existence, which can become faulty. We are very keenly aware of the lives of others. You know, we sense biological motion and so on. Um, so I think that makes us think that this this question should be easy to answer, or that there there must be an answer when maybe there isn't. Yeah, you uh, you explored some like really wild examples of kind of key aspects of life, and just showed the huge variety there is in the world. I, I remember reading about the uh, the slime molds, and you also visited a, a basement full of snakes. Um, what did you find out as you explored these different uh, forms of life? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that, you know, a good place to to, um, to to sort of center the book would be with these hallmarks of life. The kinds of things that we generally agree um, are the kinds of things that, that make life life. So metabolism is something. Um, so, you know, we, we use this, you know, we use certain molecules to make a fuel called ATP, um, and it's pretty universal uh, among living things to... to take in uh, nutrients and, and energy and to create this fuel that we can then use to power our own bodies. Um, so I wanted to, to, to really uh, get to know it in a very um, extreme, impressive form. And really snakes are, are the best. Pythons are fantastic because, you know, they can uh, eat really big things, you know, uh, half their own weight easily uh, and, and break it down and turn it into more snake. Uh, and so I went down to, uh, uh, I went down to, uh, Tuscaloosa, uh, the university of Alabama and, uh, hung out with, um, a biologist who studies snakes. And, um, we went to a place where he, uh, ha has basically, uh, given snakes that he's done studying, um, to a, a, a snake hobbyist who's basically his whole basement is just full of these gigantic pythons and, and constrictors, um, beautiful animals that are very well taken care of. And um, we just sort of, you know, fed them rats and, and uh, the scientists sort of talked to me about what's going on once that rat goes inside. Um, you know, the, that python actually, has, actually has to burn an incredible amount of fuel to get fuel out of that food. You know, you, ha you, have, to, you have to spend the energy to, to earn the energy. And um, he had basically determined that um, the, the, the metabolic rate of, of a python that's totally motionless, uh, breaking down a rat or, or a rabbit or something, that's uh, the, the same, about the same level as a, as a horse uh, in full gallop. Now, a horse in full gallop will stop after a couple minutes. This python can keep that rate up for days. So, um, so if you want to sort of see metabolism like at its finest, you you go and hang out with a python and and watch watch them watch them feed on things. You mentioned slime molds. You know, slime molds are are an amazing um, organism that a lot of people just don't even know exists. But if you see some weird kind of strange jelly-like stuff on the forest floor, that's a slime mold. And it's, it's kind of like bathybius. It's like this like mat of protoplasm that's extending uh, little arms out all over the place to feed on, on bacteria. Um, and I went to a lab where they actually are, are, are uh, 
basically like giving them problems to solve, like, you know, trying to find food like that's hidden behind a wall or uh, two sources of food on different side of a dish. And one's got a lot of protein, one's got a lot of carbohydrates or a maze. These slime molds solve these problems. They, they make decisions about where to go in order to get their food. Um, they don't have a brain. They're, they're, they're sort of pure decision-making at its most basic level. Um, and all living things have to do that. You know, you can't, you know, when you're alive, you just can't be random. You know, you have to, you have to make some decisions that help you to survive. And so slime mold is, I feel like the purest example of that, that kind of intelligence almost. Mm -hmm. To me, slime molds and snakes, they're, you know, they're definitely alive. Like there's that just intuition, obviously. And there were some stranger kind of edge cases of near life or possible life that you also explored in this book. So what were some of the, the strangest ones that you uncovered? Well, you know, there, there, are, um, there are some uh, that are kind of familiar to us, like um, viruses, for example. Um, you know, viruses, um, they don't have a metabolism. So some people say, well, they can't be alive. Okay, but here's something that's not alive, but it can evolve, um, it can replicate, it can do lots of things that we think are really unique to life. When you just pull that metabolism out and it's not alive or kind of alive. Um, but there are actually other examples that also challenge us. So, um, for example, there are these little animals called tardigrades, uh, sometimes nicknamed water bears. Um, they live in the soil. They live everywhere in the oceans and so on. Um, you can see them under a microscope. Adorable little things. Um, and they go about their business as regular animals. Um, and as regular animals, you know, they, they, they have bodies that are full of water and uh, the proteins are, are in that water doing what proteins do. Um, they can get dried out and uh, survive. They can go into space and survive. Um, and the reason is that um, they are adapted for basically going into a sort of a third state. You know, biologists say like there's life, there's death, and then there's this third state. Um, and for what happens to these, these tardigrades is that the water disappears from their body. It's replaced by other chemicals, certain kinds of sugars and certain kinds of proteins that form a glass. So they turn themselves into glass and, and they're not metabolizing at all. They can't because, you know, they, 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 they have no water, which is essential for these to, to allow proteins to carry out their reactions. So what are they? Are they dead? Well, you know, you pour water on them and they're back in action. You can wait 30 years and pour water on them and they're back in action. So, um, so there, there are lots of these, these strange examples that, um, you know, as soon as people come up with a definition of life, you can say, well, yeah, but what about this? Uh, and that's what makes, I think that's what makes life so endlessly fascinating is that it just keeps slipping away from our easy definitions. Has the coronavirus changed the conversation at all about whether viruses are alive? I, I, it's, you know, it's a great question. I wrote an essay about this uh, in the New York Times recently, and that's adapted from the book, uh, Life's Edge. And, um, you know, I think that um, what the pandemic did was it made people really aware of viruses. Um, you know, someone like me, like, you know, I wrote a book called The Planet of Viruses. Like, I have viruses on the mind, but um, most people don't. You know, you sort of go about your day, you get a cold sometimes, and you don't really think much about it. Um, but, you know, viruses uh, have this extraordinary um, existence, we'll call it. I, I, we can argue if they have an extraordinary life. But, um, I, and, I, and I think that the, the coronavirus really just, just pushed it in everyone's faces. Like suddenly, like everybody was incredibly uh, obsessed with you know, exactly which protein on the surface of our cells that the coronavirus binds to, to gain entry. Um, you know, people started to, to know that uh, on their own that coronaviruses use RNA for their genes. They don't use DNA. Um, they, they are RNA viruses. Uh, and, uh, you know, people became aware that coronaviruses can evolve. That's why we have these variants that we're so uh, stuck with, you know, we're struggling with. And so, um, so then that naturally like offers the opportunity to say like, well, um, 
now that you're seeing a, the coronavirus in action, making countless copies of itself all over the world and, and bringing human civilization practically to a halt, what is this? Is this a lie? Um, and the fact is that, uh, you know, this is a question that is not new to coronaviruses. Um, people have been um, asking this about viruses basically since they discovered viruses. Uh, in the 1930s, um, a Nobel Prize winning scientist named Wendell Stanley uh, discovered he could actually turn viruses into crystals like salt or ice, and he could just store them away um, and then bring them back and pour water on them, a little bit like tardigrades. Um, and they were uh, viruses that could infect cells all over again. So, um, so yeah, so, so viruses are a really hard case. I, you know, I think, you know, the way to think of them, about them is as part of life. Um, if you want to be a stickler about life, that it has metabolism, we can say, okay, well, they are uh, an incredibly important element of the living world. I guess computer viruses get even weirder, right? Because, you know, they they require energy to exist in, in some form. You know, they reproduce, they change. Are they alive? So <laughs> um, that is a really interesting question to ask scientists, um, especially um, if you have like a computer scientist and a microbiologist like right next to each other, which I've done sometimes. Ooh, and then you just sort of step back and just let the sparks fly. Um, I don't go into artificial life that much in this book. I have written magazine articles about it, but um, you know, there are uh, you know, people who who study artificial life and you know create digital organisms, and they very much think that you know if they're not alive, they capture a lot of what's interesting about life. They can evolve in interesting ways, and you can act, you can ask scientific questions about life studying these digital organisms. Um, but, you know, I, I, there was a scientist um, uh, named Kate Adamala uh, at the University of Minnesota, who I talked to a lot while working on this book. So what Kate is trying to do is trying to build cells from scratch that are alive. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, she's made lots of strides towards these protocells, but there's a ways to go. And she and her colleagues, you know, are still working on it. But um, I said, so, Kate, um, artificial life. Is that life? And she's like, no, absolutely not. I mean, just just absolutely no pause, no brooking, no exception. I was like, really? Why is that? And she said, well, I have something I call the goo rule, a G-O-O. Um, you know, goo is in protoplasm. It's like, if, if it doesn't have goo, it can't be alive. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the way Kate sees it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, um, so... So that question of is artificial life or computer virus alive, that is a live question, forgive the pun, um, but again, in a really fascinating way. Um, and, you know, um, artificial life has, has become so sophisticated, you know, in the past 20 years, it's really extraordinary the kinds of things that people can do with it. You can sort of watch the evolution of parasites and the evolution of sexual reproduction in these digital universes. Um, but I don't think we've settled the question of whether they're really alive. Does settling that question even matter? I mean, like, why does defining life matter when we, like, is it good enough that we know it when we see it usually? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, you, you could, I mean, life is, life is life. I mean, like, you know, life is the, the, the fact that we are alive uh, gives our lives meaning, right? I mean, like, uh, I, I feel very fortunate that I have this life um, for these whatever decades I'm going to be here on this planet. Um, what is that that I'm experiencing? Um, you know, I mean, like, when, when, when do each of us uh, become alive? When do our lives end? You know, there you have a very, uh, very important legal question with a lot of differences. Um, you know, the, the beginning of life as well is a hugely uh, important political issue in the United States. Um, and, you know, we, you know, NASA is spending a, a whole lot of money going to places like Mars um, in, with one of its missions being to see whether there's life there. You know, we have 
an amazing space probe on Mars with a helicopter on board. I mean, this is incredible stuff. And one of the things that this probe is going to do is look around and see if maybe there are clues to uh, whether or not there was life on Mars. So what do we mean? What are we looking for? I mean, uh, does it? do we have to like see people running around to be satisfied that it's life? Um, would, a, would a tardigrade be enough? Or, or, or is there some like broader definition of life that we need to uh, set up to know what we're going to be dealing with on Mars? Not to mention looking at, plan- now we can look at planets and other solar systems through telescopes. What should we be looking for? How would we know life if, if it's hit us in the face? I'd be pretty astounded to see a tardigrade on Mars. Um, I remember the in your book, you, you talked to a scientist at, uh, with the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, right? Who had kind of this almost an opposite reaction to a lot of the other scientists in your book that she actually tries not to let this kind of strict idea of earthbound life constrain her work. Why was that? Yeah, so this is Lori Barge, and she's at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And, um, you know, I, I posed it to her, like, you know, what what kind of definition of life does she have? You know, she she would like to, to um, you know, send an astrobiological mission to um, one of these frozen moons of, of Saturn and uh, Enceladus and see what's underneath there. Um, and, you know, I've, I've said like, well, do you have a definition of life that it would guide you? And she's like, I don't want to get stuck with that. You know, I, 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 it's not that important to me, um, to, to, to come up with a definition. I want to go there and, and see if there's anything interesting there. Is there interesting chemistry? Um, and, and if there is, then maybe we can take a closer look and see exactly what's going on. And maybe that would be something that we might agree on is, is life. Um, so, you know, what Laurie does is she builds um, uh, what you could call chemical gardens in her lab, which are these, basically you, you mix chemicals together um, and, and they form these like beautiful, almost castle-like structures in, in liquid. Um, you know, we, we do the, we make, make these chemical gardens when we're kids, you know, you buy kits and you do that. So she's doing it like as a job, like with, but with all sorts of crazy chemicals that, uh, mimic what's going on on the seafloor on this planet and what might be happening on other planets or other moons, um, uh, where you have, uh, a liquid ocean. Um, so, um, so these might be the kinds of places where, you know, some scientists think where life began on Earth um, and where maybe life could have also separately begun, or maybe it hasn't begun yet. Maybe you get to Enceladus and you find that um, there are a lot of um, really big, interesting molecules that have formed there, um, some really elaborate chemistries going on, but maybe it's not not quite life, you know, it's maybe come back in a million years and it might've taken off. Um, so, yeah, so, so, you know, it, it was really interesting to actually meet somebody who's, who, who studies life on other planets, who is actually trying to avoid getting stuck in a definition of life. Yeah. You mentioned the, the origins of, of life on, on this planet, and it sounds like we know the broad strokes, but there's still, you know, debate about where those very first cell-like blobs of fatty membranes around chemistry actually formed. Um, what do we know? And what are scientists still investigating? So the, the origin of life uh, really does, you know, require you to sort of try to define your terms of, of what began and, you know, what, what came before it. Um, and, you know, this was something actually Charles Darwin, um, in, you know, really tried to avoid. He, he's like, okay, like I have this theory of evolution, but the origin of life, like I, I, I just don't want to go there. It's, it's too much. It's too complicated. We don't know enough about it. Um, and things have changed tremendously since then um, in the sense that um, th- there are, we know, first of all, we know much more about the sort of the, the chemical nature of life. And there are, we know a lot more about the fossil record of life. So we've got fossils of, of microbes uh, going back over three and a half billion years. 
Um, and there's a lot of really beautiful um, uh, research going on, laboratory experiments, looking for sort of plausible pathways. How could you go from the raw material uh, of the earth, say, four billion years ago to living things? Um, and uh, th that doesn't mean that um, how life began here is the only way that life can start. Um, but, uh, you know, scientists are just trying, trying to get clues. Well, how did it start here? I refocus on, on one scientist who I've reported on for literally decades now named David Deemer, who's been, he is, is convinced that life began on volcanic islands in little ponds, um, a little bit of what Darwin speculated on, but in a much more sophisticated, uh, elaborate thing of, of RNA uh, forming and, and started to get sandwiched between oily membranes and then eventually becoming these protocells that Kate Adamala is trying to make. Whereas there are other people who are convinced that it, the action was all happening at the bottom of the ocean in these are chemical gardens. Um, so, you know, it, it can't both be right. They can't both be right. It just, they can't. Um, but uh, so it's fascinating to see these two models uh, becoming more um, fleshed out um, and, and just more fascinating. And they're discovering more chemistry as they go. I mean, literally, um, as David Deemer was trying to think about how life could have originated in these volcanic islands, he 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 got an idea about how to get uh, genetic material inside of a protocell. You know, maybe could they pull them inside and 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 hold on to them? And then it occurred to him, like, oh, this would actually be a way to sequence DNA. Uh, and that became the seed for what's called nanopore sequencing, which is one of the most important ways of sequencing DNA right now. Um, and, and, uh, and it's possible that NASA will actually send a nanopore sequencer to Enceladus to try to, 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 to a probe could fly through one of these plumes uh, of, of seawater that comes out of these cracks in the moon. And you'd use these, this nanopore sequencer to see if there's any, anything like DNA or RNA that's coming out of there. You know, if there's life, maybe it's got genes and maybe this technology that came from the search for the origin of life here on Earth can help us find it somewhere else. That would be cool. Well, we will see if that happens. That'd be really cool. So you, you interviewed scientists that you've known for decades. You visited a snake basement. You went caving um, to commune with hibernating bats. Um, what was one of the wildest things you encountered or experienced while you were researching this book? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I really, uh, wanted to, um, uh, to report on homeostasis by, um, getting to know bats because, um, I think bats are just amazing as life forms that can keep their internal state in balance. Um, they can fly through the air, uh, and keep themselves stabilized. They can even like, you know, some bats which feed on flowers can hover in front of flowers. Um, they can keep their temperature stable. They're warm blooded. Uh, and they can even manage this, uh, through the winter, uh, by doing something amazing uh, by hibernating. Uh, and they shift their, their bodies to a new state, a new kind of, uh, homeostasis type balance. So, um, so I, uh, I, I went on a trip with some New York state biologists who, um, who study hibernating bats <clears throat> and they go where the bats are and the bats in New York state, a lot of them go into abandoned mines. Um, they go into, uh, there are these mines that were uh, created for graphite in the 1800s, you know, for pencils. Uh, and so the miners just sort of dug away, dug away. They put in timbers to, to prop things up. Um, and then all the graphite business went off to Madagascar. The whole graphite industry uh, collapsed and they just left these mines alone. And now they're just home to bats. So we went into this, uh, this mine that just like, you know, not really uh, doing very well. Um, it's just collapsing in on itself. Um, and, you know, and yet there were these beautiful bats that were uh, just going, spending the winter there, um, you know, waking up every few weeks to drink a little bit of water and then going back into this strange state of theirs. Um, so I, that was a really wonderful experience. Um, 
made particularly wonderful by the fact that I was able to get out of that place in uh, in one piece. Um, you know, when when it, before we went in, you know, the uh, the biologists I biologists I was with were saying just don't touch the ceiling. <laughs> That's the kind of place we were going into. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, life. It just goes to show, like life is goes everywhere. I mean, it it uh, any nook and cranny where there's some some water and some habitable conditions, you're going to find life. Um, probably more likely a microbe than a bat, but um, it's everywhere. And and to kind of get to know it in, in in its extremes and its range of possibilities, you you have to go to some extreme places. Mm-hmm. That that had to have been though before the the pandemic started, right? <laughs> yes, yes, that was actually right before the lockdown, um, and uh, yeah. So, so after that, um, my my research for the book became very much, um, you know, over the phone, Zoom interviews, um, walking around in the woods uh, where I live in Connecticut, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, and and also, you know, um, writing about the coronavirus suddenly. Um, here suddenly here was this amazing um thing taking over the world and everyone's consciousness that was uh the perfect illustration of how hard it is to draw the line between life and non-life yeah yeah between juggling your reporting on the coronavirus and having to cancel you know travel um what wound up getting left on the on the cutting room floor for this book that you wish you'd been able to include um, you know, um, I, there were certainly things that I did leave out. Um, and I think artificial life is, a, is an example of that, where I just said, that mm, would be great. But you know what, that's just a chapter I'm just not going to write. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is that, um, you know, when you write books, um, books can get very long. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the last book I wrote, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, is you know, over 600 pages. So, you know, I decided, you know, it was time to write a book that's, you know, you know, a good, a good reasonable thickness. Um, so, so yeah. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to try to pretend to have an encyclopedia of, of all living things. Um, and certainly not a, a, an encyclopedia of all ideas and theories about life of which there are many, um, but just to sort of give kind of a representative, um, sampling on this journey as i mentioned you know just 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 taking this trip from from life as we know it to to the edges where we're not really sure what we're dealing with anymore you did manage to get into the lab though uh before the pandemic started for this book um to to look into yourself you know how organisms adapt and and evolve so what was that like you write about science but you know here you are doing it what did you, yeah. what'd you learn? Um, I learned I probably wouldn't be a great scientist. Um, I, I don't have that exacting attention to detail that scientists have to have. Um, so another hallmark of life is uh, its capacity to evolve. Um, everything that we consider alive evolves and viruses evolve too, even though some people don't think they're alive. So evolution is really like stitched into the nature of life. Um, and, you know, for Darwin, um, evolution was something that you saw the tail end of. You saw the products of evolution. You saw the, the ways in which species were adapted to their environment or to other species. And those are the products of, of millions and millions of years of, of adaptation. But now scientists can actually study evolution uh, over the course of, of weeks or even days um, because they can study uh, bacteria and um, there's a scientist uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Vaughn Cooper, who, with his colleagues, cre- realized they could create a kit for high school students to run their own evolution experiments. And I figured, well, you know, if high school kids can do it, then surely I could. Um, and so uh, I, I went over to uh, Yale, where uh, a scientist named Isabel Ott uh, took pity on me and sort of kept an sort of babysat me over the course of a week while I um basically um drove the evolution of of bacteria. Um the these were bacteria that form sort of slimy coats uh on on surfaces. And so 
they would be, they'd form a slimy coat on a plastic bead in a tube. And I would take that out and I would put it in a centrifuge and spin off the bacteria and then move them into uh, another, uh, a, a, another uh, a tube with beads on it. And um, you just sort of transfer them. And over the course of a week, you're, you're selecting for bacteria that are better at surviving in this crazy environment you created for them. Um, and, you know, but every little movement was so challenging. Like, uh, you know, Isabel would just sort of just be, you know, for her, like the, 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 the world is just full of bacteria and fungal spores that could just totally ruin your experiment. And so she's always trying to create sort of the zone of sterility around her experiments. And so, you know, if I brushed a pipette against the counter and didn't even realize it, she'd be like, ah, change out. You got it. That, that's, that's ruined. It's covered in bacteria. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you can see evolution, but you have to be really careful to, to see it. Um, but you know, like uh, this might seem like a kind of an abstract exercise, but you know, the fact is that this is actually um, directly medically important because um, this kind of evolution happens uh, with microbes inside our own bodies. You know, they're forming biofilms in, in our bodies. Uh, and um, for people with cystic fibrosis, um, a relative of the bacteria I was studying can cause these really terrible infections uh, by forming these slimy biofilms in their lungs. And by studying how they evolve, you can actually come up with strategies to to force them to uh, to become vulnerable to antibiotics and be unable to make biofilms. So, um, so you know, again, like you say, like, well, you know, do, does it really matter, you know, what what life is and how life works? And it's like, yeah, it's a matter of life and death if you got cystic fibrosis. Yeah. So. Um... It makes me wonder, you know, looking at all of these different forms of life, um, if you had to put philosophers and scientists in a ring and have them duke it out over over how to define life, what how would that go? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it would it wouldn't be pretty. I mean, and and you know, I, I <laughs> you so. Scientists have a way uh, of coming up with definitions for life um, a lot. There are hundreds of definitions of life that scientists have proposed over the years, and they're still coming up with new ones. Uh, and you, you don't really see a, a real steady convergence where people say like, yeah, you're right. I was wrong. Yeah. And we're not getting down to, to one definition. Um, and, you know, the, if you bring philosophers in, then they will start saying, well, what what are we doing here? Like, what, what, what are we trying to do? What, what, what is the goal here? What are, what are the, what do we mean by these words that we're using? Um, and so, you know, some philosophers have uh, talked about uh, ideas that uh, people like Wittgenstein uh, promoted where, you know, it's instead of life, like, let's say we're trying to define games. How do we do that? Um, would we come up with a list of things that all games have to have to be considered a game? Well, you know, that would be really hard to do and because games are, are similar to each other and different. You know, some games um, we play for money, some games are for free. Um, some games uh, involve winning and losing. Some games are completely open-ended, but we consider them all games. Um, and so Wittgenstein said, like, well, th they're associated they're connected. They have what you could call family resemblances. So maybe we should just think about these things that we, we call living as, as having these, these resemblances to each other. So it's not a big deal that viruses don't um, you know, have all the things that we have that we think of as being uh, life, but they have a lot. And so they're, they're part of this network of, of living things, perhaps. Um, but there are other philosophers who are just way more radical than that. And they just say, definitions are meaningless. It's like saying to, to ask any alchemist, define water. They're going to define it according to um, concepts that, that are just uh, wrong. Um, they don't even understand that there's a molecular basis to this thing they're calling water. So trying to define it is meaningless. What you need to do is, is do lots of experiments, get lots of data, and then have a theory click into place. 
you know, so once you have a, a, a theory of chemistry, then water makes a lot more sense, you know, and, and you can start with thinking, well, what are these things that are, are atoms of oxygen with hydrogen connected to them? And, and they do things in interesting ways. Um, so, th so they, they would argue, well, we need a theory of life, which we don't really have yet. Um, that is a work in progress. Mm -hmm. We're starting to get some uh, audience questions come in. Uh, and the first one is, how do you think humans will approach discovering life on other planets? If we found a worm-like creature on Mars, would we just slice it up without regard for its intelligence? Wow, if we found a worm on Mars, that would be amazing. <laughs> I have to say that I, you know, I am hoping for uh, something like bacteria. Um, you know, living, you know, below, right below the surface, maybe in a little damp patch. Um, so, you know, I mean, and, you know, I, I think that bacteria are fascinating and uh, don't get me wrong, but um, I think it would be a lot to, to expect to find a worm on, on Mars. Um, but, you know, we, I, I think we do, you know, in order to understand something, you, you want to analyze it. Um, and that means, to some extent, like pulling it apart. So um, there might very well be a, a, a sample return from Mars if we find something that looks like life or or uh, or a fossil, because scientists are going to want to look at this up close. Um, you know, well, you know, we we we, but we do need to you know respect the the possibility that there is life either as we know it or as we don't know it on Mars or other places. And um, be very careful about the, the the probes that we send there. You know, you don't. Which you know, NASA is doing its best to try to make these probes completely sterile because you know the last thing you want is to basically seed a planet with with bacteria from back on Earth uh, that are going to mask the things that you want to see on another planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that question also really gets at the uh, the how nebulous consciousness and intelligence and life all are as concepts and how difficult it is to kind of tease them apart and understand them individually or together. Um, we have, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, for, uh, you know, consciousness um, is very much sort of wrapped up in our, our, our concepts of life, you know, and, and I, some a reader just emailed me and declared that consciousness is life. And I was like, well, okay. I mean, tell it to the slime mold. Um, but, uh, you know, I, the thing is that we are, you know, our existence is, uh, is very much sort of organized around our brains. And so, you know, some scientists have argued that, um, when we define life, um, we define it by, uh, the integration of chemistry and other processes. Um, and so, you know, in, in a microbe, um, that integration takes place just within the cell. Whereas in us, the most important integration happens in our brains where we're taking information from lots of cells and, and integrating them into uh, an awareness of our, of our own bodies, of ourselves, of the world around us, our consciousness. So, you know, that and again, like that feeds into these very important, urgent issues. Like when do we, when do we declare people dead? This idea of integration is why brain death is such a, um, a widespread standard for death. Um, it's not that our cells are clicking along and burning ATP. It's like, do we have an integrated existence still? Um, so, um, so yeah, so the, when you bring up consciousness, um, you know, I, I talk about it in, in, in the book, uh, along these, these lines. Yeah, we have, a, another question about, um, can you talk about the breakthroughs in the human realms, like the double helix that can be applied, um, and the pursuit of social equity, um, the connection between DNA and the innocence project thoughts? Yeah, That's well, um, yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, certainly like science is not somehow severed from uh, its social milieu, you know, science, science is a, is a social process. People do it, they do it together, they do it in societies, um, and what they do has impact on other people, uh, on, on, on non-scientists. 
And so um, you certainly, um, you know, when Francis Crick uh, and, and Alden Franklin and, and James Watson and others figured out the structure of DNA, they didn't have the Innocence Project in mind, this, this project to, to uh, show that some prisoners were actually uh, innocent of the crimes they were convicted of. Uh, they were after the, they're after the big questions, you know, they were, they were saying like, we're going to, we're going to get to uh, solve the mystery of life. Uh, and in so doing, they created these tools, um, which are incredibly powerful um, and can be used um, in terrible ways and in potentially good ways. So the fact that you can uh, once once you understand how uh, the, how DNA is structured and what its function is in life, um, then you realize like oh like I can I can tell two living things apart by looking at their DNA, um, even two members of the same species. And if you know if the DNA on on that knife doesn't match the DNA uh, you know of my client, um, that person should be able to walk free. Um, so, so there are, so, um, you know, the, the, there's the potential for, for, uh, unexpected, uh, good things, uh, practical things to come out of this, this fundamental, uh, basic question that, that we're still wrestling with. Um, you know, and I think that's always true of science and, you know, we, we, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't have scientists get too pegged down to, to, um, trying to answer really specific little questions, you know, like if you, if you, if you let scientists run wild and, and deal with these big, crazy questions and fail over and over and over again, things like the Innocence Project will come out. Yeah, we saw that with, um, with Deemer's work, exploring, you know, just basic life and then making this discovery that became fundamental to uh, DNA sequencing now. That's right. That's right. So, so the, these nanopore uh, sequencers are, um, be, be, they, because they take care, they, they, they sort of mimic what David Deemer imagines is one of like the most primitive basic processes uh, in, in life. He imagines like a, a strand of DNA or some other genetic molecule going through a pore. And he realized, like, well, as it goes through the pore, there's going to be a little change in, a, in the, sort of the electric charge there that you could measure. And so um, decades later now, um, you know, there, there are these, these little devices that can do that, um, and they're really small, and they're really cheap. Um, and so they're being deployed, like, um, you know, when, when there was the big uh, outbreak of Ebola a few years ago in West Africa, um, people were just sequencing uh, genetic material just right, just like in clinics, uh, just right there and then. They didn't have to ship it off to have fancy machines sequence them. So you're going to see this, you know, this nanopore sequencing more and more in our lives. It's being used actually to sequence coronaviruses too. Um, yeah, and that just came out of thinking about, well, what's the minimum of life that I can imagine? Yeah. So you have been covering scientific advancements for decades. Um, and this audience member wants to know what you are most excited about in the next five to 10 years. Uh, yeah, I am, I, you know, I feel like, um, we're going to sort of potentially like start hitting some really interesting, I don't know what you call them, like a phase change in sort of our understanding uh, of a lot of different sciences, um, including, uh, life. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's really interesting to, uh, to think about, ourselves as being like um, living at a time before a theory comes together. You know, imagine, imagine that you lived a few decades before the germ theory of disease help you to understand why you get sick, you know, and your doctor is talking about humors and whatnot. And, and it's, it, none of it really makes sense. And, and, but, uh, and, and it doesn't, it's not, it's very unsatisfying. And then like the germ theory of disease comes along and it, it just, things start to fall into place. Um, I think that maybe in 10 years, maybe like, um, you know, some of these theories for, of life will really um, come together and, you know, maybe we'll look at life as like um, sort of a property of, of matter, like superconductivity, you know, superconductivity is very weird. 
And when scientists first found it, they said, like, what are the, what is this, what is this substance doing? How is it that this resistance has disappeared from this material? It seemed arbitrary and didn't really fit into what they knew about physics. Um, and, you know, great minds like Einstein and Feynman failed to, 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 to get an answer. Um, but eventually some people came along and did some Nobel Prize winning work and they offered a theory. And now <clears throat> we kind of understand um, what has to happen to certain kinds of matter in order for this phenomenon to emerge. So, you know, it, that, that it would be really exciting to say, like, to, to be able to say like, well, life uh, doesn't necessarily have to be made of DNA. Um, life emerges when matter f fulfills, you know, certain things. Um, and, you know, I, I'm pretty optimistic that as scientists are measuring uh, life in, in incredibly fine detail that, um, that a theory, a really strong theory is going to emerge. I think we have time for two more questions in the next okay. four minutes. See if we can do it. <laughs> um, this one is also about life on other planets. So how do your own ideals and personal value systems influence what you instinctively think of as life on other planets? And how do you detach from that to be objectively imaginative? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you, you you can't help but think about life um, on other planets as you see it around us. So I look out my window and I see trees. So you know you 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 imagine that you know a planet with life on it would have giant plants, uh, but. It doesn't have to be the case. I mean, plants weren't, you know, for most of the history of life on Earth, there weren't plants. So, um, so you know, I, I try my best to sort of um, to to think about life on Earth as widely as I can. Um, you know, there's there's you know there are there are microbes that live in the rock under the seafloor that are feeding on the radioactive breakdown of elements in there. Um, like that's, that doesn't feel like life as we know it, but it's right here on earth. So, um, so in trying to sort of like push out my own sort of uh, mental models of life here on earth, um, I think that's useful for trying to think about what life might be like on, on other planets. Um, you know, I, I, we can be biased and say like, oh, it's going to have to be carbon. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe carbon is the only atom that really has, well, the only element that really has what it takes to, to, to produce these genetic type molecules. Maybe silicon would work too. Um, we have to go and find out. So what's the next book? <laughs> um, yeah, right. After a book about life, what, what happens next? <laughs> I, I, um, Honestly, like I, I, I have no idea. Um, at the moment, I, uh, I've sort of, you know, my editors at the New York Times have allowed me to step away from intense daily coverage of the pandemic about vaccines and and variants and all the rest of the science of the pandemic, just to focus on talking about the book for a while. Um, I'm hoping when I go back that you know my services, you know, writing about the pandemic won't have to be uh, put into use quite so much. I'm, I'm really, I think these vaccines are really going to help us to, to, to drive down this pandemic finally. So when the dust settles, I think I will stop and think like, hmm, what, what's next? Um, I, I don't have an answer yet for that, but you know, I'm, I'm sure something will come. Were there any stories from researching this book that you really just wanted to like dive into or, or tease out even more? Um, yeah, you know, there, there are, uh, you know, people who are, you know, basically having robots run chemical experiments 24 hours a day to see if chemistry can come to life. Um, I'd love to see that, you know, in person <laughs> and, and, and see how that's going. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's 
it's it's going to be great to be able to to be actually go and visit science in again again in in their in their habitat in their labs in their in their caves wherever science is happening so that i'm i'm really looking forward to that after i'm vaccinated and the rest of us are vaccinated yeah got some reporting trips planned yeah whenever i i'm i'm not buying the tickets yet but i have they're planned up here <laughs> mm-hmm. well Our thanks to Carl Zimmer, columnist for the New York Times and author of Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. And uh, we encourage you to pick up your copy of Carl's new book at your local bookstore. Uh, If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. And I also have to slip in there that Cal Matters also values the support of its readers. And uh, if you've enjoyed this program, please do visit our website, calmatters.org, for more information about how to support our nonprofit newsroom. I'm Rachel Becker. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 